Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Happy to Meet Cute. Uh, hope you all had an amazing holiday season and a happy new year. I cannot believe it is January of 2023. What is life right now? But somehow we made it. Uh, this is Fallon Ballard here with my intrepid co-host, Courtney <laughs> Kay. <laughs> Honestly, not even totally sure what the definition of intrepid is, but <laughs> I feel like it fits, so we're going to go with it. <laughs> Courtney, how was your holiday season? Fallon, uh, my amazing, spectacular co-host. Hello. Um, my holiday season was very busy and very wonderful, and lots of people got colds, <laughs> and the introverts are recovering, um, but it was so much fun and really grateful for a lovely time with family, and Happy New Year to everybody. Echoing Fallon, we made Yay. it. <laughs> we survived. Yes. Doesn't it feel really good? I actually had a moment... Um, I think yesterday we're recording this on January 2nd, but I had a moment yesterday where I was like, I'm no longer a debut author. And for some reason <gasps> that just felt like so good. <laughs> like, oh, I was yes. like, the angst feels like it is like gone down at least 50%. And, uh, I am loving that journey. <laughs> I feel that in my bones and there's so much pressure put on debut you know whether it comes from I mean it comes from so many different factors right yeah but yeah to be going into the new year now like free of that pressure <laughs> feels is, good feels great <laughs> <laughs> it feels so good and um, I also so feel debut... oh go ahead oh, no go I ahead. think we were gonna say the same thing about <laughs> same debut 2023ers yes yeah <laughs> Congratulations. It's going to be an amazing year. It's going to change your life. Um, also, please make sure you have your therapist available to you in whatever capacity you need them uh, because you're going to be making some some calls. Yes, seriously. Sure. Our DMs are open. You yes. are amazing. You're going to be great. Yeah, you got this. It's not mm -hmm. nearly as awful as we're making it sound. <laughs> I know. <laughs> It's more like when you look back as a whole. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be good. You're going to do great. It's going to yes. be awesome. Absolutely. Well, have you had time uh, to consume anything over the past weeks since we've chatted? Woohoo! Okay, now off of deadline, I am trying to consume as much as I can. <laughs> Guilt-free. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just watched... The Invitation last night. And I'm so terrible. You always know all the names of the actors. And now <laughs> I'm going to look them up while I stall. <laughs> I haven't actually watched that one, so I can't help you out, unfortunately. Okay, well, no spoilers. Okay, it's Thomas Doherty and Natalie Emmanuel. And mm. Natalie was just amazing, amazing. This whole movie. Okay, so it's like a vampiric very twisty, like a really fresh take on vampires, which I am literally always here for. <laughs> yes. And it, oh, it was just so good. So good. And there's like lots of plot twists that are really fun. Just definitely like two hours, very well spent. 
would highly recommend. Um, okay. And it love that. Yeah, and I can only watch like thrillers if they're spec fic because <laughs> I don't want to like go to bed imagining that this will actually happen to me. <laughs> yes, same. <laughs> yeah, so I'm able to enjoy the thrill of it, um, which I definitely did. It has like those pop out moments, you know, where you jump. Yes, <laughs> and I loved it. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, those were good. And like, you kind of know what's going on before the character does, which I also love. Um, and then, oh, definitely like trigger warnings, especially for the very opening scene. Um, so be sure to check, check trigger warnings online for that. But um, I did highly enjoy it. Love it. I, uh, you know, as somebody, I don't want to say I came of age in the twilight years because I was definitely already a grown up when those books came out. <laughs> but to be fair we to myself, I was, same. I was teaching junior high. So I feel like it sort of was the same thing. Um, yeah, I just will always have a thing for, for vampires. You can't, yes. can't go same. wrong. <laughs> what about you, my friend? What have you been um, enjoying? So I f- finally just watched Glass Onion uh, and it was one of those rare moments where my husband and I had both not watched the same thing. Normally we like miss each other's schedules. Um, So we sat down and we watched it a couple nights ago and I mean I loved Knives Out so I was like had pretty high expectations. Yes. Um, But I just thought it was so brilliant. It was so funny. Mm -hmm. Um, Janelle Monae was in Incredible. Oh like, my God. I expect her, I want to see her nominated for all the things because mm-hmm. her performance was fantastic. Um, I just love Kate Hudson so much. <laughs> like, yes. I just adore her, especially as I have a book coming out this year that is very often tied to How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Um <laughs> Iconic. She's been on my mind a lot lately. So I just, it was so fun to see her. And I love Catherine Hahn, who's also in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I love I her just, too. Yeah. And the cameos, it's just so fun. I hope these movies just go on forever. I want to see everyone in them at all times. Like they're just amazing. Um, and so I hope they continue. I am liking the Twitter suggestion of the Muppets being <laughs> the next one. <laughs> Just Daniel Craig and the Muppets. Like, it's totally normal. <laughs> oh. It would be amazing. <laughs> Genius. Genius. Twitter, you never let me down. That's not true. <laughs> you let me down sometimes, but most of the time, you do not let me down. So thank you, Twitter. <laughs> I also really, really enjoyed uh, Glass Onion, but I only caught like the second half, mm. but I still thoroughly enjoyed it. So I feel like that says a lot about the movie. Yeah. You can go back and watch the whole thing. Definitely. Okay. For so. Sure. I actually didn't know that it was connected to Knives Out, but I guessed because it had like such a similar vibe. So is it like in the same universe? Yeah. So Daniel Craig's character, Benoit Blanc, is the lead detective guy in Knives Out. Okay. So it's a totally different cast except for him. He's the only 
like recurring character. Um, and the first one is brilliant. So if you haven't seen Knives Out, you definitely need to go see that one too. And it's, it's I, a I fun little tie-in. Oh, yay! Yeah, I haven't seen Knives Out yet, and I I need to. But I was telling my in-laws, I was like, I feel like you would enjoy Knives Out, not even knowing that they were connected. Yeah. Oh, it was so good. And Daniel Craig is just, ah. Uh, okay, and without spoil, like spoiling anything, that moment at the end with between him and the main character, I was like, I knew it! <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Just so good. So good. Good okay. stuff. All right. Well, I know we are super excited for this episode today because we recorded with Nikki Payne several mm-hmm. weeks ago now, like two or three weeks ago. And I have not stopped thinking about this conversation that we had. Like it has lived rent free in my brain. Um, Nikki is just so freaking smart. <laughs> like mm-hmm. just listening to her talk, I was like, my mind is blown. So we are super excited for you guys to hear this interview today because it's amazing. Absolutely. And Nikki is like, my chest just gets so full whenever I talk about or I think about Nikki Payne. I just adore Nikki with all my heart and honestly feel so honored that she came on our show and that we can call her friend. And, um, So Nikki just has this incredible way of making you laugh your ass off and then have you on the floor from like an epiphany of knowledge the next second. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) She is a just powerhouse of a human. And I hope you enjoy this episode. I know you will as much as we did. And um Pride and protest is just next level. I cannot wait um, for book two, which is going to be absolutely incredible. Yeah. And we talk a lot about that. So you will be get a little tantalized for book two because it's going to be amazing. (laughs) Just as good as this one, I'm sure. All right, friends. Well, we will be right back in just a minute with the incomparable Nikki Payne. (laughs) Hello, happy to meet cute listeners. It is Courtney and Fallon, and we are so happy to have you with us today. And um, say hello to our amazing friend, Nikki Payne, author of Pride and Protest. We are so thrilled to have Nikki here by day. Nikki Payne is a curious tech anthropologist asking the right questions to deliver better digital services. By night, she dreams of ways to subvert canon literature. Yes. She's a member of Smut You, a premium feminist writing collective, and is a cat lady with no cats. (laughs) 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 I provide you the cats, Nikki, the cat content. And just a brief note, Nikki and I have been friends how many years now? Um, Nikki, like at least two a couple years, yeah. And I could not have made it through everything that we've been through without this incredible person right here. And we're just so happy to have you on and um, have our listeners get to know you even better. Thank um, you for being Courtney, here. I'm so excited to be on. Uh, honestly, just being able to 
have Courtney as a friend and as a trailblazer in our group of writers. That's real, Courtney. You were the no. first. You were always turning around to say, watch out for this stump. There's a little, that first step is a doozy. Like that was you. Aww. That was you. That means a lot, especially the moments that I have um, called you and texted you and be like, Nikkei, <laughs> help me with this phone call I have coming up. What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> and you've been there, like hop on a call, friend. So I just, you're very special to me. <laughs> Adorable. I love I you guys. Know. You're so cute. We have heart emojis around it. our heads right now. And <laughs> so you just came off celebrating... Um, you know, the relief, the ecstasy, the incredible very victory hot <laughs> <laughs> hot right now um, of your debut month. Do you want to tell us about Pride and Protest and debut? Oh, my gosh. Debuting any book is incredibly nerve wracking. So you feel like all of these emotions jammed into one body. So you feel like sick with people perceiving you, but also really excited for people to read your book. So it's like you hand them your book and you snatch it back. You know? <laughs> so it's a weird feeling of like, oh my gosh, I'm being perceived. Um, so that like th- that experience has been really eye-opening for me. Um, you also realize that you've like built something or created something and it's no longer yours. So you mm-hmm. have to kind of, Put it out in the world and let people experience it the way they're meant to experience it. I don't want to make the mistake of just kind of hopping over my art and just explaining it away to people who like may or may not like it. So I've tr- been trying to really just thoughtfully release it into the world and just kind of let whatever mm-hmm. comes, comes. That's not to say that I've like reached that moment of like, um, like pure Zen, but I've been really working hard on just releasing it as a baby of mine, you know? Yeah, I think that's so important and so difficult with your debut. I feel like especially with a debut book, because chances are you've been working on it for years. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not something that you just uh, jot down in a a couple of weeks and then send it out to the world. It's, you know, been something that you've been toiling over for months and months and months and months. And then when you finally have to part with it, it's like, it's a little scary. Absolutely. It is that, Fallon. It's precisely that. And so Pride and Protest, which I have right here, is an incredible novel. And I mean, I'm going to say it, the best retelling of Pride and Prejudice that we have, this contemporary (laughs) retelling. I mean, can you tell us about um, the premise of the book for those who haven't picked it up yet and who are definitely going to run and do so after this episode. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'll start off with one of my favorite lines in the book. Um, Lisa B is a DJ in Washington, DC. She's the only DJ that gives a jam and her goal is simple. She wants to take her neighborhood back from these who she thinks are soulless property developers and they're dropping these unaffordable condos on every street corner in DC. But her little planned protest um, at their corporate event takes <laughs> takes a turn for the worst after she mistakes the uh, super hot CEO for the wait staff. Um, so they go toe to toe, right? But sparks start to fly. They can't really deny their attraction, and 
her what's also happening at the same time is her incredibly impossible to ignore meddling family is thwarting her in every move. So I would say Lisa's goal, she wants Dorsey Fitzgerald out of her hood, but I think by the end, she'll settle for getting him out of her head. (laughs) Yeah. The, um, the meat cute in this book is top notch i Mm -hmm. was like dying hysterically laughing and also just like cringing with that secondhand embarrassment where you just (laughs) you know the mistake she's made and you're just like oh oh god but also (laughs) i'm loving this so bad i just wanted people to read that and say oh no girl (laughs) just no That's what the I best meet cute does, though, right? And yes. Nikki, you just are such an expert. And I also want to comment on your voice, which is literally punches me in the face. Like every time I read your work, I'm just like salivating over your voice and your lines and your turns of phrase. They just like draw you in like no <laughs> other. You, you, you're so, so talented. And I can't wait. I mean, this is just the beginning of your incredible career, you know? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I'm just really excited for you, like, for all your, you know, fans to to pick this up and follow you in your journey. <laughs> just, Thank you. It's just awesome. Thank both of y'all. I wrote that, like, with so much joy. I had been writing this other work that was just getting no traction. And if anyone is a writer, they know the feeling of throwing something against the wall and getting so much no and getting so much like work on this change this and then I started trying to write something that made me laugh and and filled Mm. me with joy and then that was the thing interestingly enough that gets the traction like starting from that joy you know Mm. that's amazing right yeah yeah that's good writing advice too I feel like in general yeah that was the same experience for me with my debut really Yeah, I I mean, I had been writing like this high fantasy (laughs) up until. What? And I was like, you know, yeah. I didn't know that. (laughs) Of course, I was writing high fantasy Afrofuturism. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. And then so we both needed to kind of like have a little, I don't know, comedy, some rom-com situations going on for our own hearts. I would like both of those in my inbox immediately, please. <laughs> um, I'm going to say at least on my end, you, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't want mine. Yeah, I'm going to say I was taking myself very seriously. <laughs> and that's probably not my best look. So, Oh, my gosh. I love that. I love that for both of you, that you <laughs> started with high fantasy and ended up in contemporary romance. I love it. That's amazing. Yeah. Fallon, were you always contemporary romance from the start? Um, mostly. I actually, <laughs> this must be a, uh, a thing. Uh, post Pitch Wars, when my contemporary romance was on submission, I also wrote a fantasy romance. Come on. Right. <laughs> Come on. It gets us all. Year of the hot fantasy. This is it. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it, yeah. And again, it's not good. It's, it's real bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's a nice distraction, you know, maybe you yes. need to like, your brain needs a little shift into something different for a, a, a hot second. That's hilarious. Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, I, and we're I have all- so many questions about like our fantasy realm. It's going to be, it's going to get us off track, but I just, <laughs> I <have deep> questions. <laughs> oh my Me gosh. Too. 
love that journey for all of us. We were outdoors babies. Look at us. We did it. Amazing. R.I.P. Pitch Wars. We survived. Yeah. (laughs) Talk to people about your writing journey, having Pitch Wars as this kind of fulcrum. Like, Mm. I, I sometimes find, and um, let me know if this has been you guys' experience that um, people can sometimes disqualify your experience of like somehow not having like a real experience because it was like super truncated and super kind of packed into these few months. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had these agents who are kind of clamoring to, to um, work with you. And when you tell a story about, oh, this is what happened for me, people will say, well, you know you did this thing, right. what's a real experience, right? So I'm just mm-hmm. wondering about how you guys talk about your your success, essentially, and like how you put it in terms of this is how you do it. Or can you even That's say it? Question. Can you say this is how you do it, having done Pitch Wars? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think there's definitely, it'll be interesting to see the further we as we move away from pitch wars, as it's not so much of a topic anymore, if that sort of starts to change. But I definitely feel like there is, especially in the beginning, there's definitely that feeling of like, oh, well, it was so easy for you. And it's like, yeah, I had multiple agent offers several days after the showcase. And that was awesome. Before that, before I did pitch wars, I queried three books and got a whole lot of nothing (laughs) from Mm -hmm. all of those. Um, You know, I certainly experienced a wide range of rejections before doing Pitch Wars. Um, So I think there definitely is that expectation of like, oh, well, it was so easy for you. First of all, the Pitch Wars experience itself is the opposite of easy. (laughs) It is the hardest thing I have ever done. Um, Even still now, almost coming up on publishing two books, going through Pitch Wars was way tougher than any edits I've had to do um, with my editor. Mm. And emotionally, it is really difficult to get through Pitch Wars. Um, So there certainly is not the, there's no easy road. And it might seem like that from the outside, but I think those with the experience we know how challenging yeah. it is for sure. I agree there. I agree there. That's a great way to talk about it. It just seems like a un, um, a, a non-reproducible route, especially now with yes. pitch yeah. wars kind of going. You can't say this is how it's done. You know, like it's, right. it's hard for me to say this is how you should go about it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, for any listeners who are unfamiliar, familiar, Pitch Wars was a writing mentorship program that writers um, could apply to, and you would have a mentor writer accept you, and you would then go through like a three-month process of editing your novel, which ended in a agent showcase. So the, you know, I guess structure of it kind of put agents in a position that made it competitive, which was competitive for agents, which was a very turn of the tables, um, you know, from the querying trenches. So in my experience, and to answer your question, Nikki, I really think that I myself am the one who sort of uh, 
disqualifies my experience in my own mind. Like people ask, like, how was your querying experience? I'm like, well, let's skip over that. <laughs> like I get major imposter syndrome from that experience. But I remind myself my struggle was in the decade prior, you know, of honing my craft and this all these unfinished manuscripts that I have and, you know, all these things that it took me to get there. And I think that's something we all have to remember is like, no matter what happens in in how, like, once we enter the cogs of the machine, (laughs) it it all leads back to that personal journey of our own writing and how we got here. And it's all valid. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. But I also think you shouldn't discount the the work of Pitch Wars. It doesn't somehow invalidate yeah. you as a amazing writer and a Thank strong you. mentor. Thank you. Yeah. I don't think I know this, Courtney. Is um, In the Event, was that your Pitch Wars book? It was, yeah. It was? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to say that everything I went through in Pitch Wars with it was a huge, it's a huge touchstone for me on this publishing path now you know, just like writing towards a deadline and, and all these things. Um, yeah. Having accomplished that anytime I have a hardship in publishing, I'm like, okay, well, I think I can do it because I did it before. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, right, I feel Nikki? like that's good to know. It's like a, a pitch <clears throat> is like a, a good boot camp for you because it you is. are going to have those short turnaround times when you right. are publishing and, and it, it kind of gives you that training to know that you can do it and that you can meet those deadlines. That's really important. Oh my gosh. It gave me yeah. structure to revisions. So I would mm-hmm. set up these boards, these like Trello boards to say like, um, yes. I have to fix this one character and then I have to fix this one conversation and then I have to fix this timeline issue. And then you just not like you can somehow you realize you can build structure into really amorphous um, edits to say like, oh, this doesn't fit or something's not right. But you can actually build scaffolding and turn around something um, in a way that like makes sense to the reader. And that's the one thing that pitch that pitch wars taught me is that if someone says something's not working it's not like this amorphous critique of like your writing. Like there's a mm. technique, right, that you can twist to say like, oh, I don't believe that they're in love. You're like, oh, I need to add more fun and games. Or do you know what I mean? Like there are these, these yes. mechanisms, right, that that you can use. And that's what Pitch Wars has taught me. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. Me too. Yay, Pitch Wars. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a great, I love that. I don't talk about it very often, so I'm glad that we got to. Yeah. Okay. And one of the first topics we have to discuss, which I'm super excited about, Nikki, how romance lets us elevate what is desirable in a public forum. Go. Oh. Oh, oh, oh. Let's do it things that I love about like romance Twitter, even though like maybe by the time we this post Twitter may not be there, (laughs) but um, right. Like one of the things that I love about romance Twitter is that um, we're able to, or even like fan fiction or any of these spaces, you're able to converge on these small ideas and even huge ideas of desirability 
the example I give is like the preponderance of Henley shirts in romance, right? <laughs> or mm-hmm. um, are, are people swinging axes and chopping wood, right? Like you're able to, <laughs> to like actually articulate, like this is an attractive thing. This isn't just me. So it takes yes. the isolation out of like your feelings of like, hey, this is sexy. This is turning me on and I don't know why. And you're also able to give a name to the things that you're into. So for example, if you're reading a book and and a hero says, you know, you're doing great. You're a very good girl. You're able to say, oh, my goodness. I'm a price king. That's, I love that journey for me. You know? I love that journey for me, right? Or if someone like, you know, says like you're mine or, you know, are, are those things mm-hmm. and you're able to say, oh, you know what? I do have a breeding kink. That's good on me. You know? And like, <laughs> but you're also able to kind of calibrate what you read and like learn more about yourself, learn about what is desirable and why. And I feel like romance does that really better than any genre. You're able to like name a thing and have even a public discourse about if it's desirable, have these hot takes. Like someone will go on Twitter and say, I declare Henley's passe, you know, and then, you know, like, <laughs> for shame. For shame, exactly. <laughs> and then you'll, it, it's just this hot Twitter debate about Henley's, right? And, but it becomes yeah. this discussion in the public square about what is desirable. And I just think romance does that and it does it well. I love that. Yeah, I do think that, um, as a romance reader, sometimes you're exposed to things in books that you wouldn't normally try or know mm. that you're into. And you're reading that scene and you're like, oh, damn. Okay. And it's like something you maybe wouldn't have thought of, or, you know, you wouldn't even have known to think about it. And now all of a sudden you're like, all right, all right. I'm into that. Turns out, hey, honey, let's try this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're just like, I didn't I know that, that needed to be a throuple, but of course it does. Yeah. <laughs> And I think even like another layer to it too is so much of the focus in mainstream contemporary romance is knowing your own value, right? And part of recognizing what is desirable to you is like this, hey, you're valid. Like you, you belong here. You belong, you belong. And so I think part of reading rom-coms to me is also just so validating oh my god like gosh. there's something for everyone and you know whatever you latch onto, that's cool like that's cool for you <laughs> I, I love that because like even to get broad about romance in general it's it's again it's one of the few genres that actually centralizes and focuses on female pleasure anyway right like mm-hmm. nothing against yeah. mystery I love a good page turner but like most of the women end up dead and they're like not having <laughs> orgasms. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's not good for women out there in books. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and, but like you go, you open a, a romance novel and a woman's desire is, uh, is centered and her needs are being met and you close the book and she's gotten what she wanted out of life and in a partner. And I just, that's, that's it's still, it's 2022 and that's still kind of revolutionary for me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I love that. I also think my, one of my favorite things about romance Landia Twitter is that you can find that little niche thing that you're into and you can be like, 
all right, I want a book where the hero rolls up his sleeves and within <laughs> 10 minutes, you will have a hundred recommendations because 100. everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. And they're like, yep, nope, I got those books. They're ready for you. And then you have everything you want. It's just right there. Oh it's amazing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have actually done that because I put out a call for a call for papers. This is such an academic word. Uh, I, I put out a request for Twitter Romance Landia and I said, you know, there needs to be more like fat black women being abducted by aliens. Can can anyone point me <laughs> in the direction of like where these like fat black women are being abducted and like, you know, loved within an inch of their life? And then I got a a thread a mile long. Say, have you read this? Have you read Amazing. This? You know? It was great. Perfect. Really, wow. please don't go away. Romance Landia Twitter. Oh man, <laughs> hang in there. It's nothing like it. <laughs> it's the best. And tell us about. Okay, I'm very excited to hear about this because I saw a photo for it um, on Amazon Prime. What is the new soapy soap riches that you've been getting into? Oh my gosh. How dare they, first of all? Okay. Fill us in this... because that image I was like made my jaw drop. Oh my gosh. Okay. This is a show about this transnational black family, like the this family that's in America and this family that's in England. And mm. um the the father has died and left his entire company to the family that he left, right? So he has a second family, you know, hot second wife, and they're like all kind of spoiled and expectant. You know, when the father dies, he gives his entire company to the kids, you know, that he just lost all contact with. So you can imagine, like they fly there and it's wow. all kinds of drama. And what I love about this is that it is a like a black hair care line. So it's just very in line with the types of things that I'm always talking about, like beauty and colorism and like all these things in, in the black community. And she's this main character is just this amazing boss. It's just giving surprises at funerals. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if you've ever read or watched like those old timey soaps where it's like it's dynasty or it's knots landing or just mm -hmm. any of those things where weddings, funerals, or, you know, like big events, galas, you know, some shit's going down and you can expect <laughs> to find out like whose baby it really is and if like who shot Peter. Like <laughs> it is it is giving that every single episode. And it's sexy and unapologetic and I just love it. I love it. Ooh. All right. It's been bumped up to the top oh, of okay. my need to watch. I love a good soap. Like I definitely was the kid who would come home from school and like watch General Hospital. General um, <laughs> I was a young and a restless girl. Yeah. I, cause it was the one that was on at like three o'clock. And so I had time to watch it when I got home from school. Um, and I was very into that. And uh fun fact that my name comes from dynasty, uh, the original, the original version <laughs> from the eighties. <laughs> Ma'am? Yeah. Fallon Carrington. I think she's on the on the new one too. I haven't really watched the new one at all. I was but. absolutely lead <laughs> with that. Hello, I'm Fallon from Dynasty. Nice to meet you. <laughs> it's so funny because like nobody ever really recognizes it unless you like 
meet the one woman who is like just in the right age range of like my mom's little age group and she'll be like oh like from dynasty and i'm like <laughs> yep <laughs> bingo i love it i'm here for the soaps yeah. they're so fun so good oh it's that's soapy. amazing it's soapy you need that we need that i need a little soap opera drama in my life like everything's high stakes like everything every nuance matters yeah. I, I love it and you it's also, such good escape in its own right it is oh sorry Nikki, go ahead. No, I, was, I was agreeing with you but i also think like when you're thinking about um plotting romance it's not to say like romance that should be soapy but like when you think about the things that keep pages turning and keep you clicking next, mm. right? Sometimes those stakes are just right there. Um, that we, it doesn't have to be as high drama as like every soap, but there's a, a lot to be learned from the way soaps um, force us to binge and invest us in the drama and invest us in the stakes. There's a lot to be learned there. If I could write a novel that read like a soap opera, I would call that a win. Heck yeah. Something my agent, um, I've heard my agent say is like, when you're looking at beats, how cinematic can you get? Mm -hmm. Like, what is the height of cinema for that beat or that premise? Like, take us there. And I think when you're brainstorming, um, and like to what you're saying, you know, things that can happen in your novel go there, like go to the most extreme. And I feel like usually the answer is going to be somewhere in the middle, right? High middle. (laughs) Yeah. Like we don't need to be afraid to really go there because that's like what we want, right? Like we crave that sort of realistic drama (laughs) that we can buy into. I mean, I like a a, a nice, you know, quiet novel of just like where it's just a, a character study. I have read those, right? But, but for sure, but there are some stories where you are just flipping through because you have to know. And sometimes I want to be in that number of people reading because they have to find out what happens between my characters, you know? Yeah. yeah. I do think Pride and Protest has a lot of those elements to it. And I think one of the things that really does that is that all of the side characters each have their own sort of storyline going on. um, And they're all fully developed and fully realized and hilarious (laughs) and interesting. And that's part of it is like, you know, yes, we're focusing on these two characters and their love story, but it's also like an ensemble piece and you're very invested in everyone around them as well. Right. That's one of the things about like about um, Pride and Prejudice that I loved so much was that you are outraged at Kitty. Um, I mean, you're outraged at Lydia and just like kind of maybe a little bored with Kitty. But (laughs) but um, (laughs) you were you were cringing at Mrs. Bennett, like all of these characters um, made you feel certain things. And it was hard for me to disappear them in writing the uh, a retelling. It was hard for me to think that somehow they could fade into the background when part of the reason why you're just so livid is because of these characters, and you just had to make that make that real for them and make that real for me. And I and I and I I loved writing those characters. One of my favorite characters to write was was Maurice. I don't know if you could tell, but he was just hilarious to me. You know? mm-hmm. um, 
And I tried to put him in as many scenes as possible because his POV always changed the the nature of the conversation. Like he was just always so adept and knowledgeable, very rarely believed, right? But but also just um, very funny. And sometimes he was wrongheaded. A lot of times he was, but when he was right, he was right. <laughs> I love that. I love how he was like your go-to character for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you actually, I don't think it came up in the beginning, but if you want, do you want to tell us about what inspired you to do this retelling? Oh man. Um, yeah, actually, I, I think that also, um, blends into another, um, question, but I, like I said before, I mentioned that by training, um, an anthropologist and I was doing just kind of a ton of analysis on aesthetics and power and like how people and what people find attractive and beautiful. And what they, uh, there was this big analysis on dating apps. And what they found in this dating app data was that black women and Asian men were the least responded to in these dating apps. So they were perceived, they were perceived to have somehow less sexual capital in these digital economies. And because I love Jane Austen and she's always simmering in the background in my mind of like, I'm always thinking about what if with respect to Jane Austen, um, it became immediately clear to me, like when you think of these like kind of iconic characters, when I think of an archetypical brooding hero, I do think of Mr. Darcy. When I think of a delightful, desirable um, heroine, I think of Elizabeth Bennet. And I, I started to ask myself, what if, like, what if, um, you, we made this beautiful and desirable woman, a black woman. And what if we made this um, handsome, brooding, attractive and desirable man, an Asian man, right? So I, I, I definitely made race them and gendered them the way that they are on purpose, right? Because mm. something that I've, um, I find in my research and my own knowledge is that these kind of gendered and racial hierarchies of desirability are just as socially constructed as other racial hierarchies, right? And these things that we see as personal preferences and choices in modern romance are profoundly shaped by larger social forces. And and part of the reason why I felt like Pride and Prejudice was a great way to kind of think about that or explore that was because these characters were icons of desirability for me. Oh my gosh, that's so powerful. Yeah, so I mean, and... make, just making Dorsey a hot Asian male savior and Lisa a hot, vulnerable, delicate woman, you know, it felt like a kind of act of reclamation, right, <laughs> for me. Yes. And something um, a, I'm sorry, a fellow author told me once was that writing romance is an act of power as much as it is of heart, Ooh. you know, and I feel right. Yeah. That really hit. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm writing that one down. Yes. <laughs> I agree. Love that. And I feel like this also leads into our final big topic that you wanted to discuss, which I'm like, okay, listeners, when Nikki talked to us about this before we started recording, I had chills on my arms. So shall we do it? Let's do it. <laughs> Yeah, we're talking about unpacking 
ugliness. Ugliness. No, this sounds like a hard ugliness. Word, but I mean, it's actually kind of a well-trod phenomenon in academic literature, at least, right? And I mentioned before, as a as a cultural anthropologist, I studied aesthetics and power. Now, even taught a popular course entitled Politics of Ugly at the University of Pennsylvania. So I've always been deeply interested wow. in the cultural aspect of desirability. And mm-hmm. when people think about something being beautiful or something being ugly, they oftentimes see it in terms of personal preference. They see it as, this is just, I happen to find this tall person attractive, right? But there are all of these mm-hmm. ways that um, attachment to power and attachment to the power and the social structure of power can also um, feel like and look like beauty. So I'll give an example of um, a particular group, and this is in um, this is in northern. It's, it's practiced mostly in northern Africa, and it's essentially this process of fattening, right? So if there are young women of a certain age, from like um, ten to seventeen, then they're just kind of sat down and really encouraged to not move at all and fed, force-fed, uh, essentially, just kind of gruel over and over and over because it is considered very um, beautiful to have some weight on you, to have girth. And and even, like, um, they would counter stretch marks as, like, the sign of beauty. And so what does it mean mm-hmm. in largely agrarian cultures for a, an, a woman who's carrying a lot of weight to be beautiful? Like, what does that mean? Like, what are you attaching this woman too, right? So this there's this way of saying, um, my daughter is beautiful and she is not forced to do manual labor, right? And she is, she is um, not um, out in the fields, like doing all of this hard work. Also the association of light skin to dark skin is also associated with large agrarian cultures. The um, mm-hmm. association of like, hey, this person works out in the field and their skin is going to look like this. It's associated with work and labor oftentimes poverty, and individuals who are um, wealthier have the ability to work less, and those things are associated. I mean, in America, you could see the, the um, once we're kind of post-industrialist, one's ability to have leisure time, to tan, right, or to work out mm. for endless amounts of time. You could see that the, the um, tan, very thin um, individual comes into fashion as um, power is associated with leisure time, right? And so like you can see wow. these things start to connect. And you can also see the, the, the danger and the kind of societal work that's associated with, with associating some group or some people as ugly, that it does real political work. Um, the example mm-hmm. that I um, gave was about um, Nazi propaganda posters and why was it so important um, for those pictures of Jewish people to look the way they did, right? If mm. you were, if if you were intent on blaming an entire people for a, a worldwide depression, why is it so important for those individuals to look inhuman, right? Um, and and what is that doing for you to justify really terrible acts? Um, and and it's really one of the first steps in societal breakdown is to uh, isolate a group and then associate that group with all kinds of disease, ugliness. You can see it in immigration struggles. Like if anyone has mm-hmm. um, like read any like kind of anti-immigration 
um, from like the 1800s when the Irish were coming into America, right? Or in England, like the anti-Irish propaganda in England, where they made the Irish people look like chimpanzees, right? That does political work. And it's, it's important that we realize that ugliness is not just this thing that's personal and individual, that sometimes mm-hmm. it's, it's social and societal as well. And when I think about things that I can talk about forever, I'm always, even in my work, I'm constantly going to be trying to brush up against those things that we find attractive and why. And just trying to trouble them a little bit. Like, I know that in the end, like, I'm just trying to get two people to kiss. Right. I get it. I understand that. Right. <laughs> um, but I also want to to um, experiment a little bit with what that looks like and what that means. And which, which is why it was important for me, for, like I said, to, to gender and race Dorsey and Lisa the way that I did. And why I will continue, as long as I'm allowed, to play with the outer limits of um, of desirability and visibility in my work. Sorry, that was very long. No, that Ooh. was fascinating. I, I don't I'm think I like, took a breath. <laughs> I know. My I brain is like, every word. Yeah. It's so good. But I, it's so interesting. I feel like, especially now in the time of social media, where all we do is look at pictures and images all day long, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like there's definitely, as our society, we we find attractive what we're told to find attractive, um, mm-hmm. you know, and as somebody who grew up in the late 90s and early 2000s and, you know, everybody was a size zero yeah. and, you know, the heroin chic yes. look, which just as a name, it just boggles my mind that that those two words are paired yeah. together and we all just kind of went with it and we're like, yeah, let's yeah. do it. But it's like, those things still have an effect on me and I'm, you know, almost 40. And it's like those images that we just constantly see on a daily, daily basis, they really do get in your head and warp your thinking for sure. Absolutely do. I mean, if you can imagine someone growing up um, in this generation immediately after us where people are getting expansive butt injections and lip injections and, implants in order for them to kind of have this exaggerated hip to waist ratio um like that the those notions of desirability are are um changing in interesting ways and oftentimes it's associated with like who's on top and who's in power right so like with the absolute Mm. amazing reign of the kardashians right (laughs) like you see these changes in what is considered desirable and what is considered beautiful. And all of these people are changing and moving their um, bodies to fit that mold. It's interesting. I saw something the other day and I am not a big Kardashian person, so I don't keep up with them regularly, but I saw something the other day that said that now that all of the other people in the world are taking lengths to look like the Kardashians, that they have now started to kind of revert, like take out the implants to go back to. So it's like for them as the Kardashians, once they saw everyone else was starting to look like them, they're like, Oh, now we have to look a different way because we have to separate ourselves from the mass. Yes. Yes. And people have known are talking about like how much weight Kim is losing and like how um, small 
court, like everyone is like just kind of slimming all the way down. And it's this very interesting phenomenon that people will continue to chase what is considered yeah. beautiful. And it's mutable and changeable. And that's the only thing, right? If I'm going to hammer anything home, it's like, if you look at your body and say, wow, I'll never, um, you know, uh, have a, a nice, fantastic round, but, you know, like just, you know, maybe wait 10 years and like your butt will be in, you know, like give, <laughs> give it a chance, you know? Um, but like the, the, the idea of attempting to chase a, um, like the notion of beauty and the desirability is it's going to be a fool's game. And you're going to be putting in fillers and taking out fillers forever and ever if you decide to attach yourself to those ideals. And I think too, and I want to say this how I mean it, so I'm going to try my best, but as a white person whose job it is to constantly unpack um, like the white supremacy that has been fed to me as a child from our system. <laughs> it is my job to actively look at things and say, why? Where is this influence coming from? And why is this attractive? Why is this not attractive? And what's happening? And how can I support um, other viewpoints? And like how, you know, I think that's really just very humbly, I say that because it's the least I can do as that is part of my job to ask why and to unpack those internalized prejudices that sometimes I don't even realize are there until I ask those questions, I mean, you know? And I think too, like how long have quite frankly, Disney princesses looked like me with blonde hair and blue eyes, petite and how important, very important it I'm saying it is very important now that we have these conversations and we have um, more voices and more representation, more fat rep, more authors of color writing, you know, like all these things that kids nowadays can grow up seeing themselves in these main characters. And it's something I constantly come back to. And also for my child, who's also white, to say, hey, we are all the main characters, you know, <laughs> like this is not, this is not what it, you know, this, it's important to have that diversity. And so anyway, I hope I said that correctly, but. You, you, you absolutely did. And what you articulated here is, is what I feel like is the main engine of like, of like cultural critique. Like that's the, the field of anthropology or sociology or social science is to not take um, what you're given kind of for granted uh, or not not yeah. given as in like handed to, but like social norms and ideas, right? To not take those ideas for granted and to really um, look under the hood or under the surface of certain ideals and just kind of ask yourself and others why, right? That's honestly yeah. the major, that's, that's the major charge of any work. And if you can imagine like, anthrop not anthropology, but I, I feel like romance has been, doing this in this subversive way for a long time like even just you know old school um Jude Devereaux and Johanna Lindsay had these extremely capable women um secretly doing the the job of of men and 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 giving mm -hmm. us the ability to say oh this is you know this is our silly romance right but in these reimagined stories that we were reading 
these women were aboard pirate ships and they were leading businesses and they were choosing the men that they wanted and running away from the marriages that they didn't, right? These were subversive texts even then. And mm-hmm. we were able to look under the hood and say, why is this this way? And that's, I think that's, that's part of the, the cultural work uh, that we can all do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. something I'm working on too. Oh, sorry, Fallon. No, <laughs> no, no. Go ahead. Something I'm working on too, like consciously is gender biases, like constantly questioning male versus female, like trying to constantly remind myself because that's how I grew up, mm-hmm. right? Male, female, mm-hmm. and I'm non-binary. Mm-hmm. And so how do you like, con- I have to always, even as a non-binary person, retrain myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to use different pronouns and to use, like, not assume male, female, yeah. you know? And so that's something I'm working on too. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, yeah, it all comes back to why. And I, and anyway, I'm going to be listening to this conversation over and over because just thank you for sharing all that with us, Nikki. Oh, I love it. I love it. Like I said, I could be talking about it all day. Yeah. Nice. It's like, <laughs> enlightening and fascinating and i'm gonna be like thinking about all of that for the rest of the day <laughs> like puzzling it all out in my brain me too love it all right nikki well do you want to tell us a little bit about what's coming up next for you i know you mentioned there's a little sneaky peek of book number Ooh. two in the back of book number one can you tell yes. us about what we're gonna get gosh you guys i have written a sense and sensibility retelling that first of all has no business being that smoking hot. Like, <laughs> I mean, people always talk about Jane Austen rolling over in her grave, but this, I, I just, I don't know what I was thinking in this book. It is so unnecessarily steamy, but <laughs> I was just <laughs> obsessed with these two characters getting their due. So it starts out with um, a character who you have actually heard of in the book um, that they talk about her a little bit, um, who had this unfortunate sex tape that everyone knows about and Mm -hmm. she finds really at the worst time that at her father's funeral that she's the outside child her and her sister uh, are actually the result of an affair and not the actual dashes and so all of the money that they have been enjoying all of the life was just a sham Um, but they do have like this one piece of property and it's just this rickety inn in Maine. (laughs) And um, as a result, they're kind of forced as like these, like two black girls from DC forced to um, away themselves to rural Maine, right? (laughs) And try to revamp this inn. And one of the first problems that they run into is that this inn is kind of being occupied by this um, business owner, this eco-tourist who's a Native American. And the the two women are immediately confronted with having to tell this Native American tour guide that this land is theirs. And so it's very, it's very um, complex for like these um, Black women to be confronted with, you know, the possibility that they are kind of in the wrong spot doing the wrong thing. And again, like I'm, like I'm Mm. mentioning, I'm trying to like challenge and, play with this notion of like who is who gets to be the settler or the colonizer and what does it mean for mm-hmm. a, a black woman from the city 
to come into this rural area and be kind of accused of Columbusing, right? And like how that must kind of throw mm. her for this loop and how she has to rethink who she is in this space. So um, I'm really excited right. about this book. It, it was it was fun and funny to write and read and, and fun to kind of go to Maine and like um, hang out with the Native community and talk about the things that was that were um, particularly like problematic and, and things that they struggle with, right? So I, I wanted mm-hmm. to write this story um, because I wanted to play with those themes and I hope that people enjoy what I eventually came up with. So I am sold already. <laughs> Something else. Do you have um, a release date yet? Yes, um, October 10th, 2023. Okay. Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Counting oh, down. Did we say the title? Sex, Lies, and Sensibility. Yay. Love it. <laughs> there we Love go. It. Next it definitely you paint. is giving me the soap opera vibes, the As title. I'm here As for it. it. <laughs> As it should. I need you to know that there are twists and turns along this road. Okay. Cannot wait. Can't wait. Um, Can you tell our listeners where they can find you on the social medias? Okay. So on Twitter, I am Nikki Payne Books, at Nikki Payne Books. On Instagram, I'm also Nikki Payne Books. On TikTok, I am Nikki Payne Writes, I think. I just don't know why I just decided to switch it up Um, (laughs) there. Um, I am on Hive, but I don't know how long I will be on Hive because I have an Android and they hate me. So um, it's very hard to upload and kind of be a part of that community on Android. So um, so those are my three main spots. But also um, my website is NikkiPayneBooks.com. And you can come and just like join my group. It's really ridiculous. It's just Jane Austen memes and comedy. So come for the fun. <laughs> Join my newsletter. <laughs> yeah. And if you Love haven't it. checked it out, Nikki's website is a work of art. It is absolutely stunning. Uh, Danica, Danica Corral, Corral, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, I just love your website. And you also have to go check out Nikki's TikTok videos <laughs> and Instagram reels because <laughs> every day um, she's feeding us. So you need to go check them out. <laughs> Nikki, thank you so much for being here and sharing your incredible brain and beautiful heart and beautiful self. Um, We just can't thank you enough for being here. I really appreciated this. Thank you. You're amazing. All right, friends. Thank you so much for listening. And um, we will see you next time. Hugs and kisses. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Happy to Meet Cute. If you enjoyed our podcast, we would love it so much if you would give us a follow on social media. We are at Happy to Meet Cute on Instagram. And also, if you could please leave a review and subscribe, that would be amazing. If you would like to follow your host, you can find Courtney at 
court underscore K, K-A-E, on all social media platforms. And you can find me, Fallon Ballard, at Fallon Ballard, everywhere you imbibe your social media. If you would like to buy any of the books mentioned in this episode, you can find links in the show notes. And a special shout out to Zachary Kibbe and Matt Ballard for our amazing theme song. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope to see you next time.